There you go. Fantastic. Good morning. <laughs> you can always tell. You can always tell by how loud the good morning is to how much everyone partied last night. Like, it's always... <laughs> I, I want to thank um, uh, uh, Nikki Haley for being here. I want to thank all of you for being here. Thank you so much. I know it's the third day. It's early morning. We are uh, greatly appreciative at Becker's Healthcare to have you here. Uh, I'm Scott Becker, publisher, founder of Becker's Healthcare. Far more important, we've got the uh, former UN ambassador, former governor of South Carolina, fabulous leader. We've got some of the Gamecock faithful in the crowd, the University of South Carolina people. Uh, but thrilled to have uh, Nikki Haley with us, recent author uh, of a book with all due respect. There's another book coming out if you want something done. Just a fascinating person. We, we try at Becker's Healthcare to be completely apolitical, nonpartisan. I realize that, that Nikki Haley is possibly a, a presidential candidate on the Republican side. But, but, but we, we, we try always. In the fall, we had President Clinton, President Bush. We've had Hillary Clinton. We've had, we've had others. We try and always be bipartisan. We, we sort of messed up this meeting because we had the budget spent on Magic Johnson, on Peyton Manning, on Nikki Haley, and we sort of didn't hit this as well down the middle as we had. But Governor Haley, you and Ambassador Haley, has promised me, as much as a politician can, that she will hit this down the middle for us today. She has yes, promised. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. Uh, I, I met Governor Haley a long time ago when she was governor of South Carolina, just a fabulous leader, regardless of a Republican or Democrat, a great leader, and, and thrilled to have her with us today. Can you spend a moment telling people whether you're running for president or not? No, I'm just kidding. Would you, would you, would you, would you spend a moment just, just telling people about yourself and your background and where you come from and how you ended up where you ended up? Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you for those that got up early to come visit with us today. Um, you know, I was born and raised in a small rural southern town in South Carolina. Um, there were two stoplights. You couldn't think about doing something wrong without somebody already telling your mom. But we were the only Indian family in this small rural town. So we weren't white enough to be white. We weren't black enough to be black. My father wore a turban, still does to this day. At the time, my mother wore a sari. They didn't know who we were, what we were, or why we were there. And I remember when I would get teased on the playground, I would come home and complain to my mom, and her, she would say, your job is not to show them how you're different. Your job is to show them how you're similar. And it's amazing how that lesson on the playground played out throughout my life, whether it was in the corporate world, whether it was as governor, whether it was as ambassador, because if you have a challenge, if you first talk about what you have in common, what you agree on, everybody lets their guard down. And then you can start taking on the challenge and get towards the solution. And so it's, um, you know, and, and it goes to say a lot, you know, that same state that, you know, didn't understand my family and didn't know who we were, it wasn't always the easiest growing up, they came to accept us. They came to support us. And you know, it says a lot about South Carolina, it says a lot about America, that I became the first minority female governor of South Carolina. It, 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 take a moment on, you have talked about, and, and if, if you know you're an Ambassador Haley, Governor Haley, Nikki Haley, you know that she's a motivated, smart, compassionate person, but, but you've been called ambitious. And, and why is the word ambitious such a, such has such negative connotations sometimes for a woman leader. Talk about that, that concept of quote unquote ambitious and why you take umbrage to that phrase ambitious. Well, I think, um, no offense to the fellas in the room, um, you know, I think that if a man is called ambitious, it's good. He's like a doer, he's like moving, he's like a rising star. But if a woman's called ambitious, it implies that she's stepping out of line. It implies that she's over eager. It implies that she's trying too hard. And so I've just always noticed that when they call me ambitious, it's never with a good connotation. It's always with a negative connotation. So I always just prefer to be called a badass and that's easier. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting because there's a whole series of books written about being a badass and probably a better phrase than ambitious is a fascinating phrase. So many people either hate President Trump, like President Trump. Uh, I think most people feel like if he runs again, it's a very divisive thing for our country versus a helpful thing for our country. If you're a fan of his or not a fan of his, many people think that it's challenging. But, but I guess the, you know, the big question is, is he going to run? 
And, and is that going to be a mess for the, for, the, for the nation if he runs again? What does, that, what does that mean if he runs? You know, I don't know if he's going to run. I mean, I think everybody has the opportunity to do it. I know that it's tough to recreate magic. He knows that. Um, and, you know, I think that if you, if you look at the scenario, you know, when you, when you run for president, especially in these toxic times, like you never get an ounce of peace and you never get an ounce of credit. And so it's hard to put yourself and your family back through a situation. His voice is always going to be out there. He's going to he's going to make sure of that. Um, but I just don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. And take more. I'm going to ask you the same question fairly shortly, uh, and it with a different, you know, introduction to the question. The, uh, the well, I mean, I guess the answer to that question. Do you, are you, where do you put your mind at in terms of whether, I mean, people had thought of you as a presidential candidate last time. You think of you as a presidential candidate this time. What are some of your thoughts on running for president? What, what do you, how do you think about it? Well, right now I'm focused a lot on 2022 and focused on the policy side of what we're doing in terms of getting good policies out there so that we can talk about solutions. I'm working on helping some good people get elected because I think you know the House, the Senate, governors matter. If we ever knew the importance of a governor, we saw during COVID why you need to have a strong governor. And so we're focused on that. I don't need to make a decision until the first part of 23. If it looks like there's a place for me, I've never lost a race. I'm not going to start now. I'll put in a thousand percent and I'll finish it. Um, if there's not a place for me, I will fight for this country until my last breath. I mean, I just think we are so blessed to live in this country that we each have to fight for her every single day. Uh, let me ask you a different question. I mean. How exciting is it, whether whatever your politics are, that we now have a black female on the Supreme Court? Isn't that an important indication for our country as to where it's come? Isn't that, not within the politics of it, and people saying like, President Biden played identity politics, isn't it at the end of the day such a positive thing that we, we now have a, a, a black female Supreme Court justice, and wouldn't it be a positive thing if we had a minority president? So first of all, Yes, of course. I mean, I think that the day that we don't have to talk about the first of anything is a great day. And but I will <laughs> But I will also say, you know, you should caution how you do things. You know, I think that um, you know, if you say I'm going to nominate an African American Supreme Court justice, that's fine, but all of a sudden everybody goes to the label. Everybody goes to what you are. You know, instead say, I'm going to nominate the best justice that I can find. <laughs> and then bring out an African-American justice. And all of a sudden you've raised her credibility. You've raised her level. You know, when I had to appoint a U.S. senator, um, Jim DeMint had left. And so the, it was up to me to appoint a U.S. senator. I told the state of South Carolina, I'm going to appoint someone that doesn't disappoint you. I didn't talk about color. I didn't talk about gender. I didn't talk about anything. And you know who I walked out and said, this is going to be your next great senator? Tim Scott. And, and take a moment on Tim Scott, because he's one of the most popular senators that's on either party that's actually liked by the other party too. Talk about the popularity of Tim Scott for one moment if you don't mind. I think, I, look, I, Tim is a friend, he's great, he's genuine, he's sincere. He wants, to, he wants to do right by the people he represents. And I think if you go and ask the people of South Carolina, they're very pleased. And you know, I knew he would never disappoint the people of South Carolina because I knew that he wasn't going to be a flamethrower. He was going to remember where he came from, and he was going to go to Washington and make that happen. And I think he's delivered on all of that. You've had this incredible leadership career. We have in the audience lots of leaders from health systems throughout the country. Not, not talking about healthcare specifically. But what advice generally do you think about when you think about leadership? What advice would you give emerging leaders, existing leaders? I mean, we, we have some of the great leaders in the country in the audience. What advice would you, would you give them? To push through the fear. You know, whenever you're faced with a challenge, the tendency is to step back. And rather than step back, lean into it and push through the fear. Because when you do, you find out how strong you are on the other side. You know, if I didn't push through the fear, I never would have run 
for the state house against the longest serving house member, a 30 year incumbent. If I didn't push through the fear, I never would have run for governor. If I didn't push through the fear, I wouldn't have accepted the position of ambassador. When you push through the fear, you live life. If you don't push through the fear, you never know what could have been. And so I always tell leaders, even if you've gotten to this point, don't settle. You gotta keep pushing. You gotta keep pushing through the fear because everybody that works for you is watching how you do it. And it's such a great example when you can show them you lean into it even if it's scary. You were, again, my own perspective, right or left, one of the great strident speakers at the UN in, in US history as a UN ambassador. Why is it that we don't sort of get more straight talk out of the UN? Why is the UN such a challenged organization? You know, it's interesting because I, you know, that I'll tell you the story about how this happened. Um, you know, when they, when the president called and asked if I would, Reince Priebus called and said, you know, Nikki, the president-elect wants to talk to you. And I said, okay, what does he want to talk about? And he said, well, he wants to talk to you about Secretary of State. And I said, Reince, I can't be Secretary of State. I'm a governor. And he said, well, he wants to talk to you about it. You know, you need to come to New York. So I go to New York. I meet with the president. And I say, look, I'm not your person. I said, we've got too much going on in the world. You don't need someone with a learning curve, but I'm happy to help you in whatever way we did. And I went back to South Carolina to the job I absolutely loved, um, being governor. And so then Ryan's calls again, and he says, all right, Nikki, just listen. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. I said, Ryan's, I don't even know what the United Nations does. I just know everybody hates it. And he said, well, the president's gonna call you on Monday. You need to be ready with an answer. President calls on Monday and he says, all right, Nick, are you gonna do this? And I said, well, you know, in order for me to do this, there would have to be some conditions. And he said, what? And I said, well, I don't wanna work for someone anymore. I would wanna work directly with you, so it would need to be a cabinet position. He said, done. I said, well, I wanna be in the room when decisions are made, so I would need to be on the National Security Council. He said, done. So I thought, okay. <laughs> I said, well, the last thing is, I don't want to be a wallflower or a talking head. I need to be able to say what I think. And he said, Nikki, that's exactly why I want you to do this. You know, I say that because when you push through the fear, you have to set yourself up for success. If you don't set yourself up for success, it's not worth pushing through, through the fear. So. Then I had to figure out what the United Nations was, right? So I go and I obviously study a lot on the, you know, our friends, our enemies, the fights that we've had, the history that's led up to those things, but I purposely didn't study the do's and don'ts of the UN. I wanted to go in with fresh eyes. I wanted to go and be able to ask for forgiveness and not you know, ask for permission. And so I really went in there and tried to get some truth out of it. I just thought that there was a lot of paper that they read. There was a lot of, you know, formal talking points. And what I really tried to push at the UN was to talk about things that were uncomfortable to talk about. They were talking about things that they talked about decades ago. I wanted to talk about real issues that were affecting the world. And, you know, when I went in there, I said, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. I'm gonna to be taking names. Well, everyone got offended by that. But what I meant by taking names is, yes, we're gonna take the names of our enemies because we're not gonna go and try and make friends with our enemies, but we're also gonna take, take names of our allies so that we can start having the backs of our friends. And you know, that's what I did as governor, is you, know, you have to start telling people where you are. And my number one goal was to make sure everything I said was in black and white. I didn't want countries to wonder where the United States was. I wanted them to know what we were for and what we were against. And it wasn't about them liking me. I wanted them to respect America. And so that's what I tried to do when I was there. Take a moment, and there's, there's so many fascinating questions from your vantage point in history. I, I, I wanna come back to, let's start with Russia, Ukraine. Take a moment on, how do we get to a solution, a, a landing on Russia, the Russia-Ukraine situation? Is there a way to get to a landing on this 
you know, that, that, that works to get to a ceasefire, to get things to, I mean, I assume that Ukraine's not going to become part of the NATO. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with, with Putin, but what is the landing on this? Where do we end up with Ukraine, Russia? I mean, there's two options, right? And it's really simple. Either Russia wins or Russia loses. And what's our role in that? And what you have to look at is this is not just a war about Russia and Ukraine. This is a war for freedom. And it's a war we have to win. Now, that doesn't mean Americans have to put boots on the ground. I'm the wife of a combat veteran. We're very careful about when something like that happens. But it does mean we do everything we can to help the Ukrainians in this fight for freedom. You know, I can tell you, when I was at the United Nations, we had no better friend than the Ukrainians. There wasn't anything we needed to do that they weren't there. There wasn't anything I asked for that they said no to. They were one of our best friends at the United Nations, and Russia was one of our biggest enemies at the United Nations. And we should remember that, and we should fight for them when it comes to that. So the biggest thing that should have happened is when you started seeing Putin surround Ukraine, we should have, bless you, we should have sanctioned then. Because if you would have sanctioned then, you would have set the tone for what was going to happen. By not sanctioning, you gave Putin a ticket to go. Um, the other thing is... <clears throat> What happened in Afghanistan really, really hurt America. Um, from the standpoint of, I know how those countries look at us and think about us. They watch every move we make. They watch every, listen to every word we say. They judge based on our actions. And the idea that we would leave Afghanistan in the middle of the night without telling our friends that we asked to be with us, who stood shoulder to shoulder with us for two decades, was a very sad moment for America. You know, my husband deployed to Afghanistan for a year, and the hardest part was watching him watch a video. <clears throat> and the video was of the Taliban, and he goes, look, they're driving our trucks. And he said, those are our guns. And the part that bothered him the most was, he goes, they're wearing our uniforms. And they were making fun of us. They were making fun of our soldiers. And... <clears throat> You know, what Michael said was, he said it's not that Biden chose to get out. I mean, Trump wanted to get out, too. He said it's never a problem if a president makes a decision. He said it's how they do it. He said because that represented all of us. Well, what that did was that told every dictator this is a green light. It told Iran. It told North Korea. It told Russia. It told China that if we're ever going to make a move, this is when we're going to do it. So... If we would have put sanctions on them early, in the energy sector where it hurt, they would have taken a step back. The second thing is, in the Trump administration, they had approved a, a group of um, missiles, equipment, ammunition to go to Ukraine last March. The Biden administration held back because they didn't want to upset Putin. There was another round that was supposed to go in June. They held back again because they don't want to upset Putin. The thing about leaders like Putin is these guys are going to do it until you give them a reason not to do it. And, and so take a moment then. You say either we're with them or against them. It's either Russia wins or Russia loses. Is the, is the vision then that this becomes Russia's war, how Russia had their war with Afghanistan, and at some point had to sort of pull back they got so mired up in Afghanistan. Russia did, not the most recent U.S. and Afghanistan issue. Is that sort of the outcome that you see as the possible outcome? We, we strengthen Ukraine's hand enough that at some point Russia kind of withdraws like they did in Afghanistan. I mean, how do you get to the spot where Russia actually Putin wins or loses? You, I mean, you get them to the point of retreat. And the way you get them to the point of retreat is all the money going into Russia is not going to aid the people or do anything there. It's going to feed the nuclear production, the ammunition that's killing Ukrainians. So our goal is to stop the killing of Ukrainians. You pull back, if we hit their energy sector, all of their revenue stops. And so the goal is you do that in a way that you isolate them further. Then they would have to, because the Russian people would get upset. There would be more, they're already feeling uncomfortable. There would be more of that. So the goal is to get them to retreat. If we don't do that, we should take Putin at his word, which is, he wants to take Ukraine, then he wants to take Poland, then he wants to take the Baltics. We should trust dictators when they say they're going to do something. Because in usually in every instance, they're going to do it until someone stops them.
one of the great strengths of the United States has always been its economy and the federal government's lack of fragility, that they've been economically strong as a federal government. Over the Trump administration, over the Obama administration, debt has skyrocketed like crazy, both as much under the Republican administration as under Democratic administrations. We've gone from 12 trillion in debt to 27, 28 trillion in debt or more, depending what day it is. How do we turn that back around? How do we move that deficit problem back to where Republicans care about it, Democrats care about it? How do we get to that spot again where people take the debt seriously? Because we know that, we know in the long run, big debt makes companies and countries economically fragile. How do we turn that back around? It's a real problem. It's a serious problem in the fact that we are now $30 trillion in debt. We have more debt than we have in our economy, which is never a good sign. Um, the fact that we are having to borrow money as a country to just make our interest payments is a real issue. And let me tell you, when a, you have a weak dollar, that's a massive national security threat. There's nothing China wants more than to watch us weaken our dollar. So you know how we stop? We start to acknowledge that we have a problem. This is like an AA situation. Acknowledge you have a problem, and then go say we're going to fix it. And you turn on the TV, no matter what channel you watch, and everybody's complaining about inflation, right? But what are they doing in Congress? Do you know in the last spending bill, they passed 5,000 earmarks that totaled $10 billion with a B. Republicans and Democrats did that. There are no saints in the room. You know what your tax taxpayer dollars went to? One of the things was $12 million for a baseball field in New York. Another was $15 million for New Jersey to try and get the World Cup. Six and a half million for golf courses in Colorado. That is not okay. Our kids and grandkids will never forgive us for this. We have to remember the value of a dollar and that it's Americans' dollars and you can't be doing this. Every agency needs to go from top to bottom and say, what do we not need to have? And how do we open it up? The second thing is, one of the best ways to deal with inflation is open up the energy sector. There is a way to do that and focus on the environment at the same time. It's not an either or. But what we need to do is start exporting liquefied natural gas to our allies. We need to make sure that we're doing it here. And we need to get energy independent. Because there's never a reason we should go to the gas pump and rely on any other country to bring that level down. And finally, we need to look at the fact that the biggest issue that COVID showed all of us was the supply chain. That when you have a pandemic, when you have something like this, and it will happen again, we have to be ready. And the biggest concern I saw was at least start with your national security things. Why is it that if you take a COVID test, if you turn it over, it's made in China? Why is that? I mean, that's... You know, why is it that when we go and we look at if we have to wear masks, those N95s are made in China? Why is it that we had to find out that most of our medications were coming from China? Let's be smart about what we're getting out. And then let's go say, all right, this is a great opportunity to make things in America again. This is what we can do. When I was governor of South Carolina, we had all of our eggs in the textile basket. We went in, it was 13% unemployment. South Carolinians were down on themselves because we didn't have enough jobs. So I went and said, bless you, I said we're going to make sure we're not just going and taking jobs from other states. Let's start making an America again. By the time we left, we were building planes with Boeing. We were building more BMWs than any other place in the world. We brought in Mercedes-Benz. We brought in Volvo. We had five international tire companies. And the unemployment rate went below 4%. And what we were doing, we were known as the beast of the Southeast, which I love. Um, but the goal was, look at what we were able to do in that short amount of time and the pride it brought to the people of South Carolina that we were helping our country. We need that back in America again. We can do that again. We need to learn from the lessons that happened. Let me ask you this question. It's it says, politicians, it's easy to be binary. Russia's good or Russia's bad. China's good or China's bad. Iran's good or they're bad. 
But at the end of the day, we gotta figure out a way to constructively engage with the world. I mean, we don't want our masks supplied by China and be in a spot where we can't get what we need, medicines and other things from China when we need to. But at the end of the day, we have to engage with China, with India, with all these countries. I mean, how do we move towards a position of constructive engagement and strength, both, versus the binary Fox News, CNN, of they're either good or they're bad? Because at the end of the day, we've got to engage. How do we get back to constructive engagement? So at the United Nations, I spoke with the Russians every day. I spoke with the Chinese every day. You always keep your enemies close to know what they're doing all the time. I never told China anything I didn't want Russia to know. So you strategically use those, but you do need to keep them talking to see what they're doing. I don't care if Americans buy t-shirts or light bulbs from China, but I don't want them having to get their medications or anything that's a national security threat from China. So we have to go and we have to look at it in that vein is, you know, if something were to happen tomorrow, where would our weak spots be? And are we prepared to handle it in a way that we're not compromised? That's the way America needs to look at it. And it always should be from a national security lens. The way to do that is be straight with your friends and your enemies. Tell them exactly what you're gonna do, tell them exactly why you're gonna do it, and let them know that when you say it, you mean it. Because what I found around the world is especially at the United Nations, when I would talk to countries behind the scenes, they would always say how much they envied America. They loved the fact that we had freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom to be anything we wanted to be without government getting in the way. But what I also saw is when America spoke, the world listened. What America did, the world followed. Who we are, the world wants to be. The world would rather follow America than they would Russia or China any day of the week. We just have to lead. Because when we lead, the world is more safe. And let me ask you this question. I, it, it, whether I'm a fan or not of yours, you're, you're clearly extremely articulate, extremely bright, extremely engaged in the world. How do we get to a spot where the last two presidents, like them or not, you know, one is in his late 70s and others in his late 70s, I mean, I'm getting older and I'm already slower intellectually. How do we get to a spot where we keep on electing people in their late 70s as president when it's so clear that the engagement, that that's, it's hard to be engaged in a 24 hour, 24 seven job yeah. as you don't have that energy level. I mean, yeah. just it's whether, whether you love President Biden, love President Trump, it just seems like the job is sort of beyond them at this point and not, I guess not in a negative way, well, which you know, just seems so hard. I mean, first of all, it, I don't think it's just president. I think it's Congress. I think it's in every elected position whatsoever that it's really important. Number one, term limits are a beautiful thing. And I think we should not have people um, staying in office too long. But the second thing is I recently said, and I, I didn't say this to be disrespectful in any way, but we should have, our elected officials should have to go through physical and cognitive testing. Because when you go, whether it's a governor or a congressman or a president or anyone, when you've got people making decisions, the people that they serve need to have faith in them that they are at their best to do the job that they need to do. That's not partisan, that's not anything else, but I think we have to stop and look at, if you look at all of leadership right now in Washington, on both sides, both parties, they're too old. They're too old. We, we need young blood, new ideas, new passion, new fight. And for the challenges we have in the country, we need someone that's going to lead at the top that's not going to get tired. But we need a Congress that wakes up and understands this is the time to get the work done for the people of America. Because we've been asleep at the wheel for way too long. And, and, and talk about what I, I do want to touch on the President Trump for a moment. I mean, people either that have known him for 30 years either love or hate him, people that know him for a short time either love or hate him. What's the reality? Is the reality anywhere in between? What, what's what's he, he actually like? You worked with him. You came away probably one of the only elected officials. There were some people like Bill Barr, the very, very well respected people that came out of the administration pretty tired and feathered, and you did not. 
you came out of it fairly unscathed, but what, what was he like to work with, and how did you come out of this without being sort of, um, you know, put in the back closet as a, as a former person who worked with President Trump? It you was never dull. It was never dull. You know, people always want to know how I got out of the administration without a tweet. And the answer was, I told him the truth. When he would do something right, I would support him, fight for him, do whatever I needed to make sure that he was successful. But when he was wanting to go in a different direction that I didn't agree with, I showed up in his office and said, you can't do this, but instead you could do X, Y, and Z. And he would say, well, how do you see that playing out? And we would go back and forth. So I always gave him options of a better way. And I think what's important is whenever we work for a boss that's volatile, tell them the truth. That's what they want. I knew as governor, I wanted for my, for my cabinet, I asked them for three things. I said, serve the people and remember who you work for. I said, make sure that you understand that you have to be creative and time is money. And if you're costing people or businesses time, you're costing them money and that's no longer acceptable. And the third thing was, if you see me doing something wrong, say something. Because I, you don't need yes people around you. You need people that you can trust that are going to be honest. So I did for him what I wanted my cabinet to do for me as governor. Now, there were times that were interesting in that, and I'll tell you a story. We, when my first year, in the United Nations, you have what's known as high-level week. And it's the one week all the leaders from around the world and their delegations come to New York for a week. It's a traffic nightmare in New York. Um, but they all come to New York, and the goal is, you know, you have all these world meetings, but every leader gives a speech. This was going to be President Trump's first speech and his first week there, and everything needed to be perfect because I knew all eyes were on America. So I got all the meetings set up, and he called me on that Sunday, and he said, all right, Nick, I just wanted to check in. You know, how is everything? And I said, sir, we've got everything lined up. I think it should be good. He said, did you read my speech? I said, I did. It was great, and it was. And I said, but you know, Mr. President, I just want to make sure that you understand what you're walking into. I said, the UN is not for the faint at heart. I said, it's a serious place. So when you speak, don't expect them to clap or smile. It's not a rally. It's serious. And I said, I want you to think of it like church. He said, church, got it, got it. <laughs> he said, but let me ask you a question. Now keep in mind, at this moment in time, Kim Jong-un was testing ballistic missiles every other weekend. It was a dangerous time for America and for our friends. He said, let me ask you something. What do you think if I refer to Kim Jong-un as little rocket man in the speech? <laughs> I said, Mr. President, remember the part I said about church? He said, I know, but I tweeted it out this morning and it killed on Twitter. <clears throat> and I said, look, you're the president. You can do whatever you want, but I can't promise you how they're going to take it. Fast forward, Tuesday morning, he's giving his speech. North Koreans sitting in the front row. He gets up there, and he says it. And then there's a delay, because everybody's got their translator earpieces in, and all of a sudden you just see everybody go. <laughs> and then they start to laugh. And so... Fast forward a couple hours, and I'm meeting with the president of Uganda, and he says to me, so tell me, Madam Ambassador, what are we going to do about this little rocket man? <laughs> you know, and, and the story about that was, you know, a lot of people said, you know, why didn't you get him to stop tweeting? Why didn't you get, you know, when you've got a, when you work for someone, your job is not to change their personality. Your job is not to change the things that, that are surface-oriented. Your job is to focus on the message that you're trying to send. If that's what he wanted to do, you have to pick and choose your battles. He was like that. And so, you know, 
but that's how I worked with him. Is I, you didn't, I didn't say no to him all the time, but I made sure when it came to policy that we were always doing what we needed to do in terms of that. Take one moment there. When you look at, um, there's so many things that are fascinating to talk to you about. Talk about for a moment his best quality, his worst quality, President Trump. Take two seconds on that, and then tell us who runs in 2024. I mean, aside from yourself, maybe, who runs on the Republican side, who runs on the Democratic side? Is it President Biden again on the Democratic side? Is it who on the Republican side are possible candidates? Whichever question you want to take first. Well, I mean, look, President Trump, <clears throat> he came in at a time where I think you had a lot of Americans who were frustrated. If you look at rural South Carolina, where I was born and raised, there were a lot of people who felt unheard, unseen, and misunderstood. And so, you know, when he came in, he wasn't afraid to rattle things. He wasn't afraid to try and look at things with fresh eyes. And that's not ever a bad thing because we should never do something because we've always done it. We should always look at it and say, well, how could we make that better? Um, and I think every leader in every organization should always look at things in that way. So he did that. The way he did it wasn't always the best. I mean, it was, I, I'm not telling you anything I didn't tell him. I would always say you can be your own worst enemy. Like, you know, think about what these little things, don't focus on the little things, focus on the big things, focus on the big things that are going to make you know, lift up everyone. And so I think those were, you know, the issues that he dealt with. In terms of what happens in 24, I mean, look, I, I think people love to talk about 24, you know, but the, the honest answer is we need to pay attention to 22. 22 is going to be really important. You're going to look at what's going to happen in the House. You're going to look at what's happened in the Senate. You're going to have 36 governor's races. A lot's going to shift in the country, and that's where our focus needs to be. A year is a lifetime in politics. And I'll give you an example. Prior to 2016, on the Republican side, do you know who the it person was? The one that everybody was talking about, the one that everybody said, this is gonna be our next president? Take a guess, anybody? I hear a couple of Jeb Bushes. You know who it was? Scott Walker. Scott Walker, because he had just won his recall Everybody called him Teflon Scott, and they were like, this is going to be it. it. It is a waste of energy to pay attention to it right now. Because until 22, now in 23, you can start paying attention to it because that's when it'll start to move. But until then, and you're going to have people you don't expect to run. You're going to have people that you do expect to run. You're going to see all types. Take a moment on the media and politicians. I mean, if you listen to Fox News, uh, Secretary of State Clinton, Hillary Clinton's the worst person in the world. We've had her here several times, a complete pleasure of a person. If you listen to CNN, whatever Republican is of the day is the worst person in the world. How, how do we get back to a spot where pe people don't become such characters of themselves? And, and how do we get back to a spot where somebody doesn't have to toe their party line so hard? I mean, I mean, you, you've got people are so reliant on their parties for fundraising that they are so, you know, you can't get somebody on the right to say something bad about a Republican, even if that Republican acts horribly bad. You can't get somebody on the left to say something bad about a Democrat, even if that Democrat acts horribly bad, or very few, because people are so reliant on their parties for fundraising, and people become such characters themselves. How do we solve that? Is that ever going to be solved? Is that just the way it is going forward? So a couple of things. It's as toxic as I've ever seen it. Um, and you know that you've hit rock bottom when if someone puts down a piece of legislation in Congress, everybody wants to know whose it is before they decide whether to support it. I mean, that's a bad time for America, and that's when we know things are not good. How do you fix it? First of all, hold your elected officials accountable. All these congressional members love to go on national media, love to go and spout off talking points. Get in the room and do it. There is no reason they can't take on um, border security. There's no reason they can't take on wasteful spending. There's no reason they can't look at education and see that we've got a serious problem. There's no reason they can't help getting crime down. Every one of those things Congress can be doing. It is not just about a president. It is about what happens. Second thing is I don't know your political affiliations in this room, but I can promise you one thing. We agree on 85% of things. 
It's the 15% that we fight over. If we, what we have to start reminding Congress to do is, fine, you want to fight over the 15%, get some of that 85% done. Because there's a lot out there. And when we start to do that, and when Congress starts to remember what it's like to win again, not win for their party, but win for the American people, that's when we will start to get on track. But we've got to start realizing there's a lot of work to do, and there is no one that gets to sit back and sit on TV and talk about it. They've got to get in a room and do something about it. I'd love to talk about that 85-15 ratio, because I think that's 100% correct, if not even more so, that we agree on 90% of things, not 10% of things. In the Build Back Better legislation, which, which if you're on the left, was a good thing. If you're on the right, was horribly inflationary and just another wasteful spending bill. But within the bill was something to add residency spots for, for residencies, for which, which if you're in the healthcare business, you know we have these horrible shortages of doctors, nurses, uh, and every position in between and throughout the system. There are just horrible shortages. We all know that one of the problems is we need more residency spots, but that legislation for additional residency spots got tied up in Build Back Better. And, and how do you end up going back to a spot where, and to your point, whatever legislation comes out, the first person somebody looks at is, was it put out by a Republican or a Democrat? If it's by a Republican, the Democrats say it. If it's by a Democrat, the Republicans say it. How do we solve just basic problems? How do we get back to Congress being problems? Because we know it's a problem that needs to be solved. I mean, there's other things that need to be done to fix medical education. I'm a believer we got as good a health system as anybody in the world for the amount of people we serve, 330 million pe people plus. We have lots of challenges in it. It's imperfect. There's lots of health equity issues. There's a lot of things we need to improve. But at the end of the day, we see 330 million people, third largest country in the world. We do a pretty good job. We've got to do a flip towards a more permanent care. But how do we solve this issue of there are specific things and bills that get tied into these huge mega bills that are so politicized, but that people agree on on the right and left. 90% of us agree we need more residence spots. How do you get back to just passing individual bills versus everything being piled together? Because that shouldn't have been an infrastructure bill, right? If you're going to have an infrastructure bill, focus on roads, bridges, um, you know, anything related to infrastructure. What that should be in is a medical bill. And I will tell you, if you put a medical bill in front of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, and you have healthcare professionals after y'all have gone through an unbelievable pandemic situation, and you say, this is what we need, this is what we learned, and this is what we have to have, there's not a Republican or Democrat that wouldn't give it to you. But you don't put it, you don't let congressmen put it in a infrastructure bill just to be able to make it easy for them you do it so that the American people know exactly what it is that's happening. There's, you have to be honest in what you're doing, and the, it all starts with honesty and truth. But, but, it, but it's so true, though. I mean, to get back to this concept of problem solving versus political you know, horseplay, another issue is we've still got 9, 10% of the country that doesn't have coverage. And, and I'm, not, I'm not, for example, a Medicare for all person because 14% of the country is covered by Medicare. If we go to Medicare for all, it's a huge transition, huge challenge, huge problem. But, but somehow or another, I mean, whether I like the Affordable Care or not, whether I'm a President Obama fan or not, I, I like him personally very much, but whether we like his politics or not, we reduced the uninsured from 20% to 10%, and I'm not, not necessarily the ends justifies the means, but that's an important positive. We've got to get to a spot, I believe, where everybody has coverage, one way or another. And, and then we still, if we get coverage, everybody has access. Do you have any thoughts on this? How do we get to sort of to where we have coverage for everybody in a more efficient way? How do, how do we get to where we have coverage and we still got to strengthen our provider population so we can have access for everybody, but how do we get closer to coverage for everybody? So, you know, the, the whole point with Obamacare is the fact that it really acknowledged something that needed to be talked about, which is access to health care. So the, the premise in going into that was the right one, which is we've got to make sure that everyone that needs coverage has coverage. We've got to make sure that everyone's always taken care of. The problem is if you talk to anybody that's with the Affordable Care Act, they still can't afford it. So you, if you go to the issue of what we need in health care, we have to do some serious truth talking when it comes to health care, and we've got to go to reform. So in South Carolina, um, when I was looking at what we needed to do, and then you know we'll talk about this because I think what we did in South Carolina needs to go into a bigger issue. So in South Carolina, one of the first things we did, and is hugely important, is pass tort reform. You know, doctors don't give you those 10 tests because they want to. They give it to you because of if they don't, there's a 90% chance they get sued. 
So if you pass tort reform, it allows doctors the flexibility to make the decisions without worrying about having to have their back, right? The second thing we did is we eliminated the certificate of need. Now, if you don't know what certificate of need is, which I think most of you probably do, is it basically says if you, want, if you have a hospital here, if somebody wants to put a hospital here, the lawyers are going to get in the room, make a whole lot of money fighting to keep another hospital from coming. Same for healthcare facilities, same for nursing homes, same for all of those other things. What I saw was certificate of deed does nothing but give lawyers a whole lot of money. When I was growing up in our family's business, my mom would say the best thing that could ever happen to us is if our competition moved in across the street. Because you stay on your toes and you remember who it is you work for. If you get rid of certificate of need, you allow competition to happen. And you know what? If you have a hospital here and you have a hospital here, guess who they're fighting for? The patient. Quality goes up, cost goes down, speed picks up, efficiency gets in. The next thing we have to do is across the country is if you go to get your oil changed, what do they do? They tell you how much it's going to cost before you do it. We need to make healthcare completely transparent. There is no reason a hospital and an insurance company, bless you, should be able to go and negotiate for a patient and a patient not even know what it is. You can't hide that from a patient. You can't let that happen. This needs to be transparent. A patient should be able to decide if they want those two Tylenol. They shouldn't be forced to take it and then charge hundreds of dollars for it. A patient needs to decide what they want to do. When you make insurance companies have to show what they're doing, when you make hospitals have to show what they're charging, it's going to bring a conscience to the whole system. And that's something that when you do that, do you know who wins? The patient wins all day long. The patient wins, the industry wins, competition wins, quality goes up, effectiveness goes up, efficiency goes up, and all of a sudden prices go down. And then we can get to the heart of making sure people can afford health care. Because we should never have someone who can't get what they need. And we need to start accessing and making sure that the way we look at health care also includes mental health. A hundred percent on. And uh, I mean, behavioral health is certainly one of the, the things that's talked about the most and one of the biggest looming challenges in the country and tremendous shortages of behavioral health uh, therapists and clinicians and so forth. I think hospitals and health systems would tell you they're facing more and more challenges on the reimbursement side. The, the Cures Act is now passed. They've got huge labor costs and supply cost challenges and just labor staffing challenges. And that competition may be part of the answer, but they're facing so much competition from so many different places now that it's, that it's daunting to think about more competition. CON's gone in all but about 20 states, still very heavy in the Northeast and some places in the Southeast. Most of the country doesn't have any more. But, but costs are very high every place. But at, at the end of the day, we'll, we'll come back to over time. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is coverage for everybody is talked about pre-campaign every year uh, last year, famously, uh, Senator Sanders or Governor and Senator Warren talked about it nonstop leading into the, the campaign, the 2020 campaign. And then as soon as the campaign is over, that discussion just went away entirely. And, and why is that, that we get so many things talked about in campaigns, and then once you get into actually governing, so many of those things just, just become non-existent. I mean, it's, this is amazing. This is a quick time I've ever seen the speed of sound, the speed of light, and how much that discussion turned off about coverage for everybody once the Democrats won the race. Why is that? Well, I mean, it is because no one's calling them out on it, right? And I, it's, look, they can't fix everything, but what we should be doing in our country is say, what are our priorities? Where do we stand? Where do we see are the real urgent things we need to fix? Just like as governor, you give a state of the state address and you say, this is what we want to do this year, right? We need to have, Congress needs to tell us what their focus is on this year. Not what each side is going to do, but what are they going to agree on that they're going to work on, that they're going to pass. The president needs to give you, these are the three things we're going to make sure we get done. 
And so when someone is running for office and when they say it, you have to go and say, okay, you said this, but they have to report back to you what they're going to work on. And we kind of lost that. We used to do that. There used to be, remember at the start of every congressional session, they used to say, we're going to do these five things. When's the last time you saw that? We haven't seen that in a while. We've yeah, got to get back to that. And that is so true. I mean, every health system leader has to do exactly that every single day, every single year. That's what we're working on. It seems like Congress has become just, a, and again, just a debacle. I mean, there's no prioritization at all. It really becomes left versus right. Let me take you a different subject. Let me, let me ask you this question. What are you most excited about this year? Where are you most focused right now? I know you're writing another book. Where are you most focused and excited personally? What are you excited about? What are you doing currently that you're most excited about? Well, I mean, what I'm most excited about in terms of <clears throat> the country is we have a lot of opportunities. You know, sometimes you, you have to hit rock bottom to know where up is. Well, all we got to do is look up. There's a whole lot we can fix, right? And I think, but, but let's look at the opportunities. Let's just look at health care. I mean, what the healthcare industry went through over the last few years is nothing short of traumatic. You know, it really challenged every aspect of everything that happens in healthcare. But where's the opportunity? Is to actually say, okay, what did we learn from that? What could we have done better? You know, we need to be talking about what happened with testing. We still have an issue of it takes too long to test, it takes too long to get results. Are the rapid tests working? Then we looked and we saw Operation Warp Speed. You know what that taught us? Is bureaucracy has slowed down so much. Why is it it takes 10 and 13 years to come out with something when we just proved you could do it in less than a year? How can we do that for cancer drugs? How can we do that for other drugs? How can we make sure that we're doing whatever we need to, that we do it safely? But if you could do that, where are we going there? How do we go and make sure that if there's another pandemic that happens, how are we going to handle it? How are we going to make what, you know, what medicines are we going to do? How did we wear the masks? How can we make sure that next time we all talk with one voice and you don't have different voices saying different things? There are a lot of opportunities in every single industry that we should go back and say, we know better. What about the nursing shortage? How are we going to deal with the fact that nurses were burnt out, doctors were overworked, everybody felt pushed to the hill? There's a lot of opportunity to learn from that, and I hope we do that. Another question for you. Elon Musk buying Twitter. Pro, con, any thoughts on it? Just part of America and all good. Oh, I got to tell you, I don't agree with Elon Musk on a lot of things, but boy, is it a great day in America. I mean, it really is. Um, and let me, let me tell you why. This isn't about Elon Musk. It's not about Twitter. This is a bigger issue. It's the issue of... When you look at all the chaos in the world, the, when you get, the reason you get chaos is when we look distracted. We have been so distracted for so long on things that are not priorities that we need to be doing to lift up everybody. And so when you look at a situation, when you've got businesses and other people focusing on what someone says on Twitter, is that really the place that we should be? Because I sat there and, and defended America's freedom of speech on the world stage every day. And they loved that we could do it. And, you know, whether you agree with President Trump staying on or being kicked off, you get into a bigger issue you don't want to get into. So you kicked off President Trump. But what about the Ayatollahs that say death to America every day? You know, when does it stop? When do you decide how it's going to happen? So the reason why I like this is because I hope that this is a sign not just for Twitter but for social media in general what should happen. Number one, they should have to show us their algorithms. They should have to show us how they decide what they're going to do and what they don't. If you can see it, I'm happy with it. If they show you that, that means they're being transparent. That, that's the first thing. The second thing is... I have a blue check mark by my name because I'm verified. They should verify every individual. You know what happens when they do that? 
all the bots go away. You know who the bots are? The Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians that are all making would, things would you, up that are not true. I don't think people, people don't. This is a very important point, though. I, I, like you, I'm a free speech absolutist. I don't believe somebody else should tell me it's your science, it's my science. I'll let people all talk and figure it out. Don't, don't talk somebody down because they say you shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that. Let them all talk and figure it out. Talk for one moment. I do want to ask you about Netflix's price falling, too, as in addition to Twitter. But talk about, and I say that somewhat jokingly, but talk about um, this bot issue. Because people, I don't think, realize how big this bot issue is, an influence issue. Just take a moment on why everybody should be verified. I mean, it, this seems so uh, crazy. But this is a big part of what's going on on social media. Is I mean, you've got normal people like me saying stupid things. But then you also have, like, bots. So just one last point. So from the social media, I love that Elon Musk rattled the cage and woke people up. I hope now it goes to big media and they rattle the cage and it goes back to the days that when you turn on the news, they don't tell you what to think. They give you the facts and let you make up your own decision. So the bots. The bots issue, just to put this, um, give you a real world example. Prior to the 2016 election, did the Russians get involved in the elections? Yes, they did. Was it, you know, did it shift the numbers? No. The way they do this is they got onto Facebook, they would go create a rally over here that had racial undertones to it. Americans would go to this rally not knowing that the Russians are the ones that set it up. And that's how they play into American politics. And now it's not just the Russians. The Chinese are doing it. The Iranians are doing it. And the North Koreans are actually doing it some. So what they do is when they see they can split America, they go and emphasize it. They go and a bot will come into a feed and just say something that's controversial. They'll put up a post that says something to rattle the cages. That's how they're influencing that. And look at how much the news reflects what's being said in social media, right? It's like targeting that. So the bots, every time you see someone that is not a real name, you shouldn't just assume that's an American. Because in a lot of cases, that's a that's an foreign national. It's someone else that is doing something because they have algorithms that allows them to go and infiltrate everywhere to do these things. It's to, incredibly dangerous. To, to essentially create more chaos, more dissension, and like this concept of verifying who, if, whether it's a real person or not, is, is so, so important. The, at the end of the day, you've got this fascinating situation with interest rates where we had done this quantitative easing that sort of supported the country during the pandemic. Uh, like Alan Greenspan, there's lots of thoughts that maybe it was overdone. Now you've got this situation trying to raise rates back up to fight inflation. You've also got to fix supply chain to fight inflation. Where does sort of this balance out? How, is, there, is there a way to balance this out with some equilibrium, or how do they get back to a, a normal, uh, a, a normalized economic policy? I mean, I worry that the Fed is slowly, over the past two administrations, I worry that the Fed is is getting too political. They're letting politics weigh in on what is happening, and that we don't want to do. Because when they hold off raising rates for political reasons, or they're, you know, they do raise rates for political reasons, I think we're getting into like scary territory. I think they should have handled this sooner. I think they waited too long. I think the fact that we're going into debt is really a lot of the reason we're seeing inflation. But this is a fascinating situation because you mentioned this. Chairman Powell, who's a Republican by background, had to get reappointed by President Biden. So arguably went very slow in raising back rates because he didn't want to upset President Biden because he wanted to get renominated. It became very politicized. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, people don't President talk about Trump it. And President Trump was beating him over the head, too. And, and like, President uh, Trump was abusive about it as well, and, right. and, and, so, and wrongfully so. So either side, it's really something that you want them to do what's right without any sort of political situation, but you also want to have good people that know what they're doing. And at the end of the day, the reason this is so bad is the average American family will spend more than $6,000 this year. Now, when Michael and I were raising our children, if you told us that we had to spend more than $6,000, you know where we got it from? a credit card. That's what's getting ready to happen to American families. 
That's the reason why we have to be concerned. That's why we have to right this ship quickly. Because while we say, oh, this will even out, well, yeah, it may even out for companies. It may even out for those that are comfortable. This is getting ready to be really bad for American families. And, and, and we want it evened out without causing a huge recession. I mean, it's really a fine line and a fine challenge, but we sort of got here a little bit through both trying to fight the pandemic and the recession that came from that, but also some politics that have gotten into this in the last eight years or so as well. But what a fascinating situation. I, I have to tell you, I, I've got to wrap up. We've got um, one of the great CEOs in the country, Howard Kern speaking next, who's literally one of the great focus CEOs on quality and safety above everything else, speaking next, the CEO of Centera. I, I want to thank, uh, I don't know whether to call her governor, president, Those are ambassador. moments in time, it's uh, Nikki. But, but, but we'll, we'll see if, uh, if the president, hey, he doesn't become the next moment in time. It is just a great privilege to have you speak thank again. You. Thank uh, you governor. very much. You know, I, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you very much, I appreciate it. Thank you. I do want to leave you with, with one thing because I think it's really important. You know, when I was in the administration, I didn't get to go to the pretty places. That was the other cabinet members. I went to places that were really difficult to go to. And I saw things that were really, I can't unsee. And what I want you to know is to think about this a little bit. I went to the Democratic Republic of Congo where they use rape as a weapon of war. I was in South Sudan and sat with crying mothers whose babies had been taken out of their arms and thrown into fires right in front of them. I stood on the Simon Boulevard Bridge between Venezuela and Colombia and watched thousands of Venezuelans walk in the hot sun holding their babies to get the one meal they might get that day. They're now killing zoo animals for food. I have seen children and women that were killed by chemical weapons in Syria. I know there's a lot of negativity out there, but what I want you to remember is even on our worst day, we are blessed to live in America. We just have to fight for her. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you so much. Phenomenal. Thank